We have a special guest today on the podcast. We're interviewing Robert Osborne, principal of the Osborne Group. Bob has more than 25 years of experience in the nonprofit sector and is a well-known international speaker and workshop leader. He works with all types of organizations and all sizes. Today, we're going to have a thought-provoking conversation to get you thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion when it comes to fundraising. Welcome to All About Capital Campaigns, a podcast that provides fuel for your nonprofit's growth. Each week, Andrea Kilstead and Amy Eisenstein, co-founders of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, provide practical tips about raising more money for your nonprofit organization. Here are your hosts, Amy and Andrea. Bob, I'm so happy you're here with us today. Uh, it's just wonderful to have a chance to talk to you about campaigns and about diversity and equity and inclusion. But let me start by saying that I am super happy to um, to know that that you are beginning to collaborate with my old friend, Andy Robinson, with whom I wrote this book on training exercises. And Andy and I initially created this uh, the website, Train Your Board Together. Then I withdrew to do this business with Amy. And now you are collaborating with Andy Robinson on the website trainyourboard.com, I think it is. I think so too. Um, for, first of all, thanks for, for having me. I appreciate you inviting me on, on the podcast. Um, yes, yeah, so we are um, doing some collaboration with, with Andy. Uh, I met him maybe two years ago during the, the pandemic and we were at a, a mutual virtual conference and um, he added me to his mailing list. And you know, I, I really liked like just the look of it and the and the specificity of the board training he was doing. So, and then I saw that he was specifically looking out for um, people of color that are consultants. Uh, and so I reached out to him and, you know, we've been doing some co-training together and now we're doing train your board together. Uh, yeah, it's always fun to meet fellow fellow consultants. And I was surprised that our paths hadn't crossed before. We, we know certainly some of the same people, but uh, but it's been nice to get to get to know him. Yes. Well, and I've sort of felt the same way about you also. I'm sort of surprised our paths haven't crossed before. We are, you and Amy and I are are really in the same and sort of tangential businesses. So why don't we just, you, your firm not only works on fundraising and diversity, equity, and inclusion, but you have done a ton of strategic planning and fundraising and, and your firm is long and well-established in this fundraising business. So we're delighted to have you. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. All right. So let's go ahead and dive in. So today we're going to be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion as it relates to donor identification and boards. So, Bob, why don't you get us started? Um, how do you think about or why should nonprofits be thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion with regard to donor identification? Yeah, well, I would say, like, overall, I think it's, it's a good thing for people to be thinking about for a variety of different reasons. I mean, as you both know, you know, just have diversity of all kinds, not just ethnicity, but, you know, geographic diversity, professional diversity, um, just different backgrounds, just makes not-for-profits stronger, right? You get different different thinking and, and, and then having, you know, representation from whatever communities you're 
you know, that you serve is also really important because again, you, you get the perspective of those, of those communities. And again, you'll be, be stronger. So, uh, so I'd say sort of overall, those are the, the kind of the big picture reasons, um, you know, around identification, I think there's, this is kind of an ongoing debate. I definitely have a point of view, but I, I will, I will headline it by just saying that, you know, there, uh, when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and specifically how it applies to any fundraising practice, you know, I, I don't know that there's established best practice or an established consensus yet. So it's 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 really some, an ongoing conversation, and I think um, I think that's always important to say as part of these conversations that that it is a conversation. And so, what I whatever I say today, I may have you know different feelings about it a year or two from now, and I think together we'll all kind of get there and, and figure it out. But I, I think it's important because you know people of color have traditionally been left out of philanthropy in many in many instances, and and I think. One of the things I think is powerful about our sector and important about our sector is that it it's ultimately pretty democratic. And and whatever we may think about the origins of philanthropy and sort of how it fits in with everything else, ultimately most philanthropy, right, is like local organizations trying to do something for their community of whatever kind. And and you know, it's it's essentially a marketplace and people will sort of, you know, quote unquote vote for those organizations that, you know, either through volunteering or through donations that are making the most the most difference. And so when we leave out whole communities as part of that conversation, then you know I think that becomes problematic. And so I do think it's important in the sense that, you know, we, we want to be as inclusive as possible and let people make their own decisions about whether they want to support an organization or not. And that, that means that they have to be at the table and they have to, you know, be part of those conversations in the, in the first place. Uh, you know, one of the things that always on my mind about this is the diversi- diversification of, of boards and the diversification of campaign steering committees, for example. As you know, we're in the capital campaign business, so we see a lot of this through that particular lens. And, you know, we know that it's easiest to reach out to people who are in your own immediate community, whatever that community is. And it takes effort and energy to expand outside of your immediate community. And I've come to understand, to believe that that's why we need to prioritize the diversity, equity, and inclusion aspect of what we do, because it's just easier not to. It's easier not to reach out to people who are not like us in all sorts of ways, not just racially, but in all sorts of ways. And when we prioritize it, right, in the capital campaign, for example, when we say, well, listen, why don't we spend some time really looking in our community to see who the donors are who are not you know, like the rest of the people in our immediate community, that's going to benefit us. What What's your sense of how best to do that, how, how to be intentional about it? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it can be tricky and there's a nuance to it, but I would say overall, yes, you should do it. And, you know, my my colleague Laurel McCombs and I are always, you know, we, we talk about board diversification a, a lot, but, you know, we, we usually kind of headline it with like, yes, you can find BIPOC board members. Yes, you can. You're probably not looking hard enough. You probably just need to try, try harder. But that said, I don't, I don't want to minimize, you know, we, we know who we know, right? We kind of move in our own, our own circles and, and that can be, it can be hard sometimes to, to reach outside of those circles as you, as you mentioned. Um, And so ultimately I think all of this works, you know, is, is a pipeline question. It's, it's, you know, how do you build that from the grassroots? And there's a little bit of a chicken and the egg question, around this as well. What I would say is, you know, I, I actually wrote a piece um, in Andy's blog just last week around board diversification, because as you might imagine, right after the last two years, 
I was asked suddenly to be on a bunch of boards. Uh, and so on the one hand, you know, that's nice and good. <laughs> on the other hand, you know, a fair number of these organizations I had no real prior you know, knowledge of or involvement with. And so it was pretty clear what they were trying to do. And it's not even necessarily that I have a problem with that, but I would wish that they had been more upfront about it. Like just saying like, hey, we haven't been good about this. We want to be good about this. Would you help us be good about this? As opposed to just sort of pretending that, that they've given this deep thought about, you know, why I, you know, Bob Osborne in particular should be on this board as opposed to we need an African-American or, you know, with some, some diversity on the board and Bob seems to fit the bill, you know, like one board, the board chair didn't even know I was a fundraising consultant. I at least assumed that that was fighting <laughs> wow. the board, but he was like, what do you do again? Wow. So it was very clear that they had had no actual discussion about me other than, you know, my ethnicity. So yeah, we got to start somewhere. And so I, I certainly don't fault organizations for, bringing, you know, attempting to bring on people of color onto their boards. I think it, it does have to start somewhere. And if that hasn't been something you've historically done, then, you know, it's going to kind of feel a little bit out of the blue, but I think we just have to be honest about it. And, you know, it's just like, like anything, you, you know, you might invite a board member on and saying, Hey, we need to change the board in this way. We need more donors. We need more, you know, people with influence. Can you help us do that? So I would say this is, isn't any different. Uh, and it feels badly when it's not when it's not that way. So, you know, I have other other thoughts about it, but I would say that's kind of the the big highlight around, you know, boards. You know, I have a cautionary tale. I haven't thought about it for quite a while, but I have a friend whom I met because she was on the board of an organization I was working with some time ago here in New York. And um, the my work with that organization was was challenging. Actually, the committee I was working with was had some challenging members. And my this woman and I ended up going down the, going down the elevator together. And I said to her, "Gee, was that as difficult a meeting as as you know I thought it was?" And she said, "Yes. You want to go and have a cup of coffee?" Now this was a woman of color. She had been the only woman of color in the room on that committee. And over the year, we became friends. And over the years, I got to know one another. And what I learned from her was about her board experience there and elsewhere, which is that people would invite her to serve on a board because she was a woman of color. And then she would knew that board members were socializing, but nobody would ever invite her to socialize with them. And it felt like she was really there just because her face was a different color. And nobody wound her into the life of the organization in any more effective way than that. And I thought it was such a wonderful cautionary tale and that, that you can't just invite someone to be there to be window dressing, right? It has to be a deeper commitment to understand how other communities live or to, to really embrace the people, all of the people who are, who are on your board. Just that, that story really, you know, I got, because I got to know her so well, I got to understand how damaging it was for her mm -hmm. to be treated in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great point. Um, so recently over the summer, we at the Osmond Group were debating, you know, which acronym we were going to use. We're going to we're going to use DEI, DIB, JEDI. And we went ultimately with DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging for that reason, because it's it isn't just enough to invite people on. But once they're on, you you know, you have to once they're part of the organization, 
you want them to feel like they they are part of the community uh, as well. And I would say, as a as a person of color and um, as, as someone who served on on boards and continues to serve on boards, I think that's the toughest part in some ways uh, is is creating that feeling. And it can be as blatant as you just said, like just people just not making an effort to socialize. It can also just be topics of conversation that you have. Like for me, the hardest thing is, um, you know, my my parents obviously started the Osman group and they do just fine for themselves. But the reality is when I grew up, we were pretty middle to working, working class. And so the the times that I feel most sort of out of place probably evolve around class. Now I've, I've learned over the years, I do okay for myself as well. But, you know, Often I'm in spaces where you know, we're just talking about things that I just don't do. Like, you know, are we talking about helicopter skiing? I don't do that. I'm not going to do it. Um, so. <laughs> most, most probably, most of yeah. us don't. Only yeah. a certain, a certain sector of donors, uh, yeah, a certain exactly. segment of donors. But yeah, that's a good but example. It can be a subtle thing like that, you know, where no one means any harm, and I, I certainly don't fault people for wanting to talk about you know, things that are important to them. But also I think we have to be aware, we should try to be aware, like, are, are we talking about something, you know, in this space regularly, you know, that that is going to make the people, you know, some people feel uncomfortable. It's just something that they can't relate to. And it, it's not to say that you can't, you know, you should talk about what you're interested in, but it's just, I think just being conscious of, of are we creating uh, an inclusive environment where people feel like they belong and what can we do around that? Because it's often those subtleties that actually drives board members out. And it will be just that subtle. It'll just be an accumulation of those kind of things where people just say like, I just don't, this isn't the board for me. You know, I just don't, I don't feel comfortable here. It's a good organization, but you know, I have value. My time is valuable. There's lots of good organizations out there. There's lots of things I care about and I'd, I'd rather find the, the place that you know where I do feel like I belong, and I, I wish them well. It's not it's not hostility or it's, or even anger about it. Usually, it's just kind of like eh, this this isn't for me. Uh, and so I, I think we just have to be conscious of those those kind of interactions because um, and then that can be for women. You know, it can be. I think probably the most common example is just men talking a lot and <laughs> not really leaving space for for other people to to speak, you know, that can be a belonging issue as well. Amy and I understand that. I'm sure yeah. you do. <laughs> well, I, I think that's such a good specific, I, I'm always into concrete, tangible specifics. So if you're in a board setting and you design an opportunity for people to do introductions and get to know each other and then have everybody participate by contributing at least an idea or two throughout the course of the meeting, as opposed to only letting the loudest voices in the room speak and everybody else, you know, unless you specifically call on them, will just sit there and listen and melt into the background. So there are concrete things that you can do to be more inclusive and make sure that every voice is heard, that people are actually getting to know one another a little bit other than the surface, you know, the obvious uh, skin color issue. I mean, your story, Bob, about being recruited to a board and the person didn't even know you were a fundraising expert is totally appalling to me because every board wants people that are can help and are experts in fundraising. And the idea that they didn't even know that is shocking, it's shocking. But, but shouldn't be. I guess it shouldn't be shocking, but it, it just is. Yeah, it can be 
unsurprising and shocking at the same time, right? Yes. So I, I think, you know, that's kind of the story of our times. I mean, we all have stories, right? And we all, I think, you know, from probably from me too on have really, I think, been thinking about our work differently. And I think, I don't know about the two of you, but there's certainly things that I look back on and say, oh, I can't believe that we just accepted this or just let let this go. You know, I mean, certainly as, as women fundraisers, I'm, I'm sure you have stories uh, <laughs> to tell around, around that. And, you know, and, in, in, you know, in the past, I think, and too often, we probably just accepted that as just, well, that's just fundraising, right? That's yeah. just, it's just what you do. And, um, and so I'm, I'm happy now that people are approaching these topics with, you know, with more intentionality and, and really thinking, you know, oh, just because we've done things the, this way always doesn't mean that we have to continue to do it uh, the same, the same way. And, and usually the things that just create a stronger board in general are the, the things that are going to also make people feel included and, and in part of the community, like it really isn't, a separate effort, right? It's like all the things you should be doing anyway, you know? Right. Yes. <laughs> so, I think yeah. that is so true. I'd like to go back to this idea of donor diversification efforts around research and identification. Can you either give an example or share a story or something that you've seen that's worked or is starting to work? Um, or, you know, something concrete that an organization could try as they aim to diversify their donor pool. Mm -hmm. And we've already established that it is hard if you run in circles of, you know, the same kind of person, it is hard to outreach. So what has, what has worked or what do you hope people will try? Yeah, well, it's not well explored. Um, we have a number of clients that we're working with right now, uh, thinking about like, what is what is the theory ar around this? And these tend to be larger clients. So I think it's easier when you're a community group, or I think a lot of this boils down to having the right volunteers, as you might as you might imagine, you know, having people that are part of the organization that can make those, those introductions. But I think, you know, before you even consider that, you really just have to ask yourself the question of like, well, why are you doing it in the first place? And I would say that this actually is the biggest barrier to it. A lot of DEI efforts laudably just start off as, hey, we should, we're not, we haven't been doing this, we should do it, right? And it just kind of becomes um, this collection of things that you're doing. Uh, but there's not necessarily a commitment at the at the organizational level to really to commit over the long term, because just like any acquisition effort, right, it's a long term commitment. Like if you just do it for a year or two, it's it's probably going to lose you money because you're going to, you know, it's just not going to be worth it. And if you're um, and just as we talked about before, if you're doing it with your volunteers, you may alienate them because you're not doing all the other things that you need to be doing. So the first question any organization has to ask itself is, well, why are we doing this? You know, like, why is this important to us? And again, while it's laudable to do it because it's the right thing to do, that probably by itself isn't enough. You probably need, you know, more of a plan, more intentionality. You know, this is important to us because of our values, because, you know, it's an opportunity for us to to reach out to more donors and be more inclusive. It can, we work with a lot of environmental organizations um, for them, it's really important just to be successful in terms of their mission, right? They need a broad coalition of people who are, um, you know, in support of their of their work. So that's that's where I would say you have to you have to start. And then, you know, I think it's really hard to do. I think a lot of organizations think about donor diversification 
uh, like from a direct marketing standpoint, which I think is really hard to do if that's all you're doing with, you know, with retention rates being like 44.5% and first year retention rates being like 20%, you know, it doesn't take a lot of math to kind of see how that is going to be a challenging thing in and of itself. And so it really does have to become like a broad effort across the organization that where the board is bought in, you have a volunteer base that's bought in, you have a pipeline that's being created through those volunteers. And, and there's clarity about why all this is important so that you, you commit to it over the long haul. Uh, and so I think, I think there's different models and it's easier to do. Certainly if you're a smaller organization, I think it's very possible. I think it's much more challenging to do if you're a larger organization. Um, but I think all of it really, boils down to yeah clarity commitment and then and then starting to build a volunteer base at the board level but also probably to support your mid level giving i think that's an area where you can get a payoff you know you can where professionals reside of whatever ethnicity whatever you know whatever identity and so i think that as a practical matter helps sustain it because you can see the money come in because at the end of the day we're about the money and there has to be the return on investment and i do think that's important and sometimes gets lost in these conversations um, and not important just because we're fundraisers, but because if we're not getting return on investment, we're not going to do it because ultimately, as soon as something, the rece a recession happens or something goes wrong, we're going to revert back to whatever it is that we were doing before. So I think any DEI effort around donor diversification or any other kind of, of um, DEI effort as it pertains to fundraising, that ROI has to be there, not purely for capitalistic reasons, but just for sustainability reasons. Um, yeah. you know, I, I worry that there's just going to be, well, we tried that. It didn't work. So we reject all things DEI <laughs> and fundraising, and we're going to go back to what we did. Right. I think that's a good point. There has to be some understanding that some of this is trial and error and you're in it for the long haul. Um, I thought it was interesting that you said it's it might be easier for smaller organizations. I bet some of them are thinking, no way, we don't have any resources, but uh, I'm sure it's challenging on in different ways for all types of organizations. Um, Andrea, you looked like you had some thoughts or a question. Well, you know, I, I think it's easy for white people to assume that people of color don't have resources and aren't generous. And that actually, for the most part, turns out to be not true. I did a campaign years ago, actually, for for the Brightside Baptist Church, and they were building a community center. And we worked very hard to to draw from both sides of that community, from the the congregation, people who were involved in the church, and from the wealthier people in the in the community who gave the largest gifts, right? The foundation people in, in the community. And I think it was a real eye-opener that when the when the people, you know, who traditionally gave the largest gifts in that community began to understand the power of the generosity within that church mm -hmm. and how the how people of color gave, they gave differently from the way the white community gave, but they were more generous, certainly relative to, to proportional wealth. They were more generous. So I think it's, we make assumptions that often aren't, aren't true. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's a, a big assumption that gets made even by people of color too. I mean, I get into this, this argument with, with people of color as well, where we can't ask money in this community for this reason. And the underlying premise of that 
trepidation is that there's no money there and there's no generosity there. And, and there's lots, there's not lots, but there's solid research, I think, at this point that, you know, that people of color are, are often more generous relative to their, to their wealth. Um, you know, the, the Smithsonian and uh, the African-American Museum in, in DC, you know, 74% of the $1 million gifts in that in that campaign were were from African Americans. And so, you know, like I think lots of time we we just don't really give it the thought and and we don't know where to look, right? Like so right. there's most people of color have networks, but they're not necessarily connected to the traditional networks that organizations look at. And so it feels like it's just not there, but That's right. but you're just, you know, you're not looking in the right place. And so again, we kind of throw up our hands and say, well, it's not there. Or we don't think when we think of black wealth in particular, let's say, you know, we're thinking about Oprah or Robert Smith, and we have like five names that we're thinking about instead of thinking about, you know, this managing director of this bank or the local C-suite, you know, there's, there's guy, there's, there's lots of professionals who in every community that, that have wealth. And we don't, we, we generally don't think about that in general, I would say, <laughs> not just for, right. you know, for, for people of color, but we don't always kind of look that layered down. Right. And there is a lot of, there is much more wealth in that next layer down than you might imagine. I mean, I think I've experienced people who, who, for example, own McDonald's franchises. So somebody buys one McDonald's franchise. Well, and if you start to pay attention after a while, they own five McDonald's franchises. Now there is serious money to be made in that, in that part. And we don't think about that, right? We don't think about people who, who are entrepreneurial and successful in that way. And they can be people of any color who are, you know, who, who do that. So, so I, I think once again, it goes back to the fact that we started with, which is that it's easier to go where we know and feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And it is harder to go to places we're less comfortable. We're afraid we might make mistakes in doing it. We don't know if there's a payoff or not. We don't know how to tiptoe in without, you know, I mean, there's a lot of trepidation about, about all of that, but, but we need, I think, to start making decisions that we're willing to do that. Excellent. I, it's, it's just, I'm oh, sorry, Amy, go ahead. No, that's all right. Go, uh, yeah, I was just going to start to wrap us up, but please sh share your thought. No, I was just going to say, I mean, that's, it, it's it's exactly that. And and that's why I think the, you have to just make the the effort and it does have to be at the organizational level, you know, if, if it's um, you know, ult ultimately, now that's not to say that, that an individual contributor can't contribute, you know, like we, we have a model of like activators and advocates. And I think deciding sort of where you are and what your role is, is this something that you can change within your organization, within your sector, you know, within your department, or is this something I can advocate for? I, I think is helpful because I, I think people get frustrated with this, work sometimes because either they want to, they feel like their organization or the sector is just moving way too slowly uh, and they, and they want to kind of push for, for more change uh, or they feel like that change isn't, isn't possible. And I think kind of thinking about, you know, where am I an advocate in this, in this situation or am I an activator? Am I someone who can actually enact that change in some, some way, I think is a helpful framework to think about this work because it, it really is a journey. It really is something, you know, we'll wake up 20 years from now and we'll have some best practice around this. But, but for now, you know, it's, it's conversations like these where we'll work out what the right thing is and, and how to do this work, uh, how to do this work well. So, you know, we're always happy to be 
part of these conversations because we think they're important. And, you know, we're always happy to be challenged as well. Just, you know, we're not a positive that we're right. We definitely have a point of view. We've definitely thought about it. But um, I think just the fact that we're even having these conversations is exciting. Great. Well, we completely agree. So thank you for being willing to have the the conversation with us and help us on our journey. And hopefully uh, by sharing this with others, we've helped you on your journey. Um, Bob, why don't you share a little just briefly about what you do at the Osborne Group, who you serve and who would be helped by calling you up? Sure. Uh, well, we're generalists, so we, you know, we we do most things for not not for profits at the Osborne Group, other than branding. We don't really do that, but we do development plans, feasibility studies, capital campaign plans. Um, we we are lately doing a lot of values based, values driven fundraising, and what and what that looks like, and that's been uh, been exciting. Uh, we do opinion research, you know, focus groups, and we've done that in the DEI space as well as it pertains to fundraising. Uh, so that's been been interesting. Um, and then we do a lot of strategic planning uh, as as well. So pretty soup to nuts consultancy. We have clients as big as a couple hundred million dollars a year budgets. We have clients that are $2 million a year and, and everything, everything in between. So uh, Great. And, yeah. And we, we love working with all not-for-profits. It's exciting for us. Excellent. Where can people find you? What's your website? The website is theosbornegroup.com. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining Amy and Andrea for today's All About Capital Campaigns. To learn more about them and their work together, go to CapitalCampaignToolkit.com. You can hear more from Amy and Andrea on a live webinar they host every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join the live sessions and get your questions answered by signing up today at ToolkitTalks.com. And please like, rate, and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you. Thank you.